I really hoped that this kind of crackdown won't last forever. It might change and hoping that one day I might be able to return home. But things never changed. It actually worsened day by day, year by year. Hello and welcome to the Art Persists podcast, a new series by Bosla Arts offering a glimpse into the life of artists and activists from all over the world, here to share their story with you, the listener. In each episode, we feature interviews with artists who share their first-hand experience of using their work to stand up to some of the world's most feared dictators and regimes, and individuals working day and night to protect them. My name is Georgia, and in this episode, we chat to Rahima Mahmoud, a Uyghur singer, human rights activist, and award-winning translator. Rahima has translated the testimonies of survivors during the Uyghur Tribunal, and is a prominent voice for Uyghurs in the UK. In 2018, Rahima co-founded the SOAS Silk Road Collective, and is currently the vocalist for the group. She has performed at music venues and festivals within the UK and worldwide, becoming well-known in Central Asian music circles. Rahima is currently the UK Director of the World Uyghur Congress, Executive Director of the Stop Uyghur Genocide, and Advisor to the Interparliamentary Alliance on China. When it comes to poem or songs, Sometimes I find it difficult where to start because I was born into a musical family. So from the start, I can talk I, or I can understand my language. And that's the time I started listening to music, uh, songs from my mother, my brothers and uh, other uh, musicians. So also as time goes by your taste for music and also the poems changes because of the circumstances what impacted me most especially about the Uyghur poems is is about the using the poetry to describe your feelings the poetry affected me personally it always been different at like a different stage of my life but especially after coming to this country and the first song that I uh, recorded with my musicians is called the Levan Yala and the the lyrics goes we settled in the mountains as we lost our place in the gardens we have ended up in such hardship because we didn't choose to surrender and now this is our fate So the, the reason this meant so much to me, and still means a lot, is because 
you know, I left my country and I settled in a, in a different place. And uh, uh, it is not completely by choice, but you feel that 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 feeling about you know being in exile and being not able to go back to the gardens, you know where you where you grow up. And uh, also, there's another another poem that I really treasure is by Abdurrahim Utgur. I would like to share this because this was quoted by a Howard president when he visited uh, Beijing in. 2019 and I believe he did this intentionally quoting such a great poet Abdurrahim Utkur who was a very controversial who spent many years in prison for his writings and in Peking University and he quoted this this poem along life's road I have always sought truth in the search for verity Thought was always my guide. My heart yearned without end for a chance of expression and longed to find words of meaning and grace. Come, my friends, let our dialogue joyfully begin. So there are just so many poems out there that some expresses the longing for home and uh, things that you have lost forever there are songs that or, or poems is about this kind of longing to be able to express freely but yet you cannot Rahima thank you so much for sharing that it's both really really beautiful quotes and I think so convey like you said that longing for home but also the longing also to be able to express yourself freely. Welcome to the podcast. And can you tell us a bit about that longing for home? Where is home for you? Where did you grow up and what was life like? I am from a city called Hulja, uh, the northern part of East Turkestan, the so-called Xinjiang, which is uh, translated as new frontier or new territory. Um, we don't like the, the, the colonial name uh, as Xinjiang because it doesn't sound Uyghur at all. It's a Chinese word. For me, my home is East Turkestan and the northern part, the Hulja. Hulja is very well known for its apples, mountains and hills and lakes. And also Uyghur people from Hulja, they are well known for their poetry, the songs, music. Also, we call it chakchak. Chakchak uh, is humor, the um, sense of humor. So I grew up in a family. My mother's side, there were musicians and poets from my great-great-grandfathers. They were quite known in the region. And so every family... Uh, all my uh, extended and re relatives, they all had a musical instruments in the house, all the traditional musical instruments in the house. And uh, my father's uh, business was a fruit wholesaler. So I spent a lot of my summer holidays in the in apple orchards. Wow. And uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, the place where I grew up as as a child was actually in a village 
um, called Nogaitu, not far from the Olja city. And it's one of the most picturesque, beautiful village in the region. So, yeah, I really, really miss the smell of the naan bread. Hmm. Because we, <laughs> we Uyghurs, every household we do, I don't know now, but it used to be like, you bake your own own bread and that is in the tandoor. Not of course that time we didn't have electric oven or anything. So when you walk in the street, you know everywhere you 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 smell this fresh, beautiful, and bread. Yeah. So yeah, I mean the ideal heaven for me is those places that I grow up and with that community and Uyghurs are very known for the Uyghurs known for hospitality they just always we are always ready to to provide and to share um you know everything yeah with with, with people it sounds so amazing. I think this oh, oh yeah all across Middle East and uh, mm. Central Asia and everywhere yeah absolutely and you mentioned that your family was musical. Was that your first kind of introduction to music was through your family? Yes. My mom never stopped singing. <laughs> she she always, <laughs> uh, she worked very hard. She's a very talented musician, singer, and also, um, you know, dressmaker. Apart from uh, cooking for large family Everything was done by hand at that time, and uh, she made beautiful, beautiful dresses. And whenever she was working, doing housework, she always sang. So that is the like first introduction, uh, I believe. Even in my in the cradle, I grow up listening to my mom's uh, lullaby, and uh, then. Uh, from my brothers, uh, my hmm. two elder brothers, they played music and also sang. And my uncle, uh, one of my uncles, I still cannot find a comparative singer uh, to my uncle. I guess it, because from the very little, you know, a young child, um, I loved uh, his singing. Sounds like such a wholesome scene. <laughs> Did you start singing as soon as you began to speak? I believe I started singing maybe around four or five years old. Mm -hmm. I remember I, I, I went to school when I was, uh, when I was six. Uh, but prior to that, uh, always singing, even when I was like uh, playing, like uh, my mother sang while she was cooking and she was doing housework. I, I think, was singing while playing and on my own. <laughs> yeah, I remember when I was a very, very little and my brother's friends, when they came or when they passed the street, if I was like sitting outside and they would come to me, begging me to sing and I, I, I would just stand up and sing. So that's a very, very early childhood. It's interesting how this, you know, the family traditions and uh, you know really really influence you from very very early age yes absolutely and for those who may not know can you just tell us a bit about your people and your community um, who are the Uyghurs so Uyghurs 
We are originally from the region, we call it East Turkestan. Geographically, it's uh, Central Asia. And Uyghur people, we speak the language. Uyghur language is very, very similar to Uzbek language. So the roots we all used to call Turks. So before we were divided into many different ethnic groups like Uzbek and Uyghur, in ancient time, in old times, we were all called the Turks. So that even the Turkish people, your Turks came from, they originally came from Central Asia. So um, Uyghur people, we have our own distinct culture. We are... Muslims, uh, prior to accepting Islam, we were Buddhists and shamans, lived in shamanism and Buddhism. So the Uyghur art, when you chase back to thousand years ago, they are very Buddhist sort of uh, influence. So, for example, still in my country called Meng Uy is like thousands caves, and you you will find those paintings and arts and uh, it really illustrates the love life of Uyghurs oh. and uh, um, so the, it's a very very distinct culture uh, language uh, music art uh, so especially uh, because of our Islamic faith as well that kind of prevented us to assimilate very quickly comparing to many other ethnic groups in in China just like Tibetans because Tibet also has this very strong identity yes so the Uyghurs are same even though the colonization uh, started you know long time ago but the full occupation and also complete assimilation process um, even though started decades ago but Uyghurs remained, you know, very strong to, to resist that kind of assimilation policy. So the, the reason we remain still, you know, singing our own song, speaking our own language and painting the Uyghur art uh, completely different from the Chinese, because my people... We are always, always proud of our own distinct culture, our music, our language, and our tradition. Yes. What's your musical culture like? I imagine it's very strong, like you said. What, what are some of the typical instruments and themes of the songs? Our instruments, um, if you are familiar with Central Asian music or even you know, Arabic music, they, they mm. actually do, you will find some kind of similarity, mm. um, especially the classical Uyghur music, uh, the maqam, or, you know, we call it muqam. The lyrics itself is, is mainly express about the life, you know, the love, lust, longing, and also calling for peace, for, for, for unity, and uh, uh, etc. Uh, the instruments we have, we have the most basic instrument that uh, almost every household has, um, is called a dutar. 
uh, it's do is Persian is two tar um, is a string so like two stringed instrument easy to play but also very beautiful uh, that can uh, so, sometimes it act as like a percussion as well mm. to keep the rhythm so one of the most important and essential in instruments in uh, any Uyghur music band. Then mm. we have tambour, the drum, um, we have rejek. Rejek is very, that sounds similar to violin. When it comes to the Uyghur music, the lyrics a lot is about love songs. Mm. And uh, now, um, especially in the last four or five years, it's, you cannot find any joyful song was written uh, by any artists, any musicians. It's all absolutely sad and uh, songs that express pains. <laughs> You've mentioned already in some parts about what is happening to the Uyghur people in China, but could you just maybe talk a little bit about what's going on there and the oppression that they are facing for those who may not know? So the, the persecution is not new. Since the occupation, uh, even before the Chinese Communist Party occupied my country, Prior to that, those nationalist government, that time the Uyghurs fought and regained independence in 1944, uh, but that was short-lived. And then in 1949, uh, the Chinese Communist government occupied, reoccupied the region. Mm. And since then, the disaster just never stopped. Um, from the rightist movement in 19. 58 uh, then the cultural revolution uh, although this is this happened throughout china everywhere but whenever there is a, a crackdown uh, in the country the people like uyghurs and tibetans and mongolians all the, the people who had this distinct culture and the religion and belief and who are very different from the majority han they are targeted always the case. So throughout Cultural Revolution in 60s until Mao died in 76, we lost a lot of our well-known intellectuals, poets, cultural figures and religious scholars. Then uh, after Mao in 1976, the new leadership from the early 80s changed the policy and denounced the cultural revolution so the Uyghurs were able to uh, practice a religion and there was a really a kind of revival of Uyghur culture, music, art and uh, there are many writers like Abdurrahim Utgur who spent almost 20 years in and out in prison uh, managed to write novels and uh, more poems but then uh, in 1989, the Students' uh, Democratic Movement, uh, led by uh, students in Beijing, 
uh, that was failed. Uh, uh, you might have heard about the June 4th massacre. Yes. That how the, the CCP deployed tanks and the military killing thousands. And so then crackdown started again from early 90s all over China. But as I have explained earlier, the, for Uyghur and Tibetans and other ethnic groups, this crackdown was murderous. It was a murderous uh, policies that was implemented. So anyone who expressed their different views or organized any kind of protests met by this kind of military crackdown. So then the Gulja massacre happened in 1997. That was the event that led me to decide to leave my country. And then after I left in uh, 2000, I hoped that, you know, like what happened during the Cultural Revolution and then later it was denounced. Uh, we had some good times during the 80s and I really hoped that this kind of crackdown won't last forever. It might change and hoping that one day I might be able to return home. But things never changed. It actually worsened day by day, year by year. Mm. Then in 2009, another peaceful protests in the capital of Urumqi, led by again Xinjiang University students demanding equality and accountability, justice, was similarly a very similar method, deploying military police and killing hundreds and detaining thousands. That brutal crackdown led to the ethnic violence in the region. And then Chinese government used this against the Uyghurs and basically portraying all Uyghur people as terrorists. So they turned the region into a police state. So from 2009, these police checkpoints and the complete surveillance cameras covered the whole region. The, the government called no blind spot. There's people, even when they go to their own, com own house, uh, the communal places, wherever you ha they have to, use the identity card, the personal identity. And in 2014, uh, from 2013, they started to examine every person's um, history for the past 20 years. Mm. Uh, they called the, the working group formed of six people. And uh, so they made sure cover each household and their persons. So their lifestyle, whether they are religious, if they ever uh, signed any petitions, whether they are uh, involved in protest, if they've been to Hajj without the permission by the, by the government, mm. if they traveled abroad, how many times they traveled abroad, that these kind of information they, they gathered and then basically categorized people and family. Sometimes even if you are 18 and if you are never involved in anything, but if your family were deemed as 
a bit political so you are automatically deemed as political as well and then 2016 in the name of third generation id card said we will we will give you the third generation id card Uyghurs was summoned to go to hospitals and clinics mm. to get blood, to have iris scan, to facial uh, recognition scan and all that. So every Uyghur, the, the basically the, the government, the, 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 the authorities have everything about you, biological, physical, all in their hands and established computerized system that your every move can be monitored by this high-tech surveillance. So we know that from the start after 2009, the extrajudicial killings, extrajudicial arrests was introduced after the July 5th massacre and the, there was a, a conflict between the Uyghurs and the Han Chinese. There were some casualties. Since then, the, the government uh, deliberately using its propaganda, portraying Uyghurs as terrorists, Islamic extremists, and uh, all suspicious. And then later, from the leaked uh, documents in 2019, uh, the actual speeches by the high-level officials made it very, very clear that basically they treated Uyghurs as an enemy of the state, so indiscriminately and said round up whoever can be round up and uh, said break their lineage, break their uh, roots, break their connections. Mm. So all that gave uh, us a very clear understanding that the current crackdown, you know, the genocidal policy, the locking up millions since 2017 didn't happen suddenly. It was all pre-planned mm. and uh, step by step uh, establishing the concentration camps, mm. uh, a, you know, uh, frame it as re-education, even fooling their own people and also hoping to, to fool the international community. Yes. The uh, mass arrest started in 2016, only after the uh, UN acknowledged that in August 2018 that up to one million Uyghur and other uh, Muslim minorities were interned. The world suddenly realized uh, something like this happening. Mm. And uh, also many people who didn't know Uyghur people or didn't even know how to pronounce, yes. um, you know, woke up to the news that, you know, this largest internment of a people due to their race and due to their identity since uh, Second World War, since the Holocaust. Yes. So the Uyghurs are now facing genocide, uh, whether they're taken into the camps or at their homes, no freedom. There is no, you cannot free to pray, free to practice your own culture, uh, tradition. I, I have never thought, uh, even though I witnessed uh, persecution, mm. killings, arrests in my life, um, but I have never expected on this global stage, China considered as uh, one of the biggest power and, uh, it, you know, it could be the future superpower and committing genocide. Yes. And yet the international 
um, community and the governments around the world not really doing much to to stop and to prevent what what is happening. Yes, thank you so much for sharing that. Obviously, you as you've said, you came to the UK. Can you tell us a bit about your work kind of advocating for the freedom of the Uyghur people, uh, particularly at the World Uyghur Congress? Could you just tell us a bit about what you do and and also the challenges, as you, as you described, of people knowing about these horrendous things happening to your people, but also very little action taking place? What are some of the hardest things about the work that you do? From the day I arrived in this country in September 2000, I have been advocating and uh, talking about the persecution, mm. especially the Hulja massacre and how the Chinese government treating the Uyghur people, the discrimination that we have been facing for decades and also inaction of the uh, international community really actually gave the more power to the Chinese government to, to kill and <coughs> to imprison. Mm. Alongside my, my advocacy work, I've been also working as an interpreter, translator, consultant for many documentary films that was made, uh, like Undercover China's Digital Gulag, China, The New World Order. Mm. And that gave me first-hand experience interviewing survivors and people who are really affected, like mothers lost all their children mm. up until now they don't know what happened to them and uh, many Uyghurs in exile who have information about their family members some died soon after released from from camps mm. even in in this country we do have some families you know received absolute horrific horrific news yes. and all this was the tool for me uh, for my advocacy work. Mm. So in 2019, I started working as the um, UK director of the World War Congress. Mm. My work is focused on the grassroots campaign, so raising awareness among the grassroots communities, and also a campaign, uh, UK Parliament, to also raise awareness amongst the MPs and uh, put pressure on the government to take action. Mm. During this work, I formed a, an advisory group, 11 advisors, cross-community, cross-party, then established and founded the Stop Uyghur Genocide campaign. Mm. So I work both for the World Uyghur Congress, a more political work, and the Stop Uyghur Genocide is more charitable, mm. so supporting the refugees here and also um, around the world, raising awareness amongst faith groups, different communities, and uh, building up campaigns in in the parliaments, as well as, you know, using my music. My music is another in a, in a way of art to tell the story and to to educate public about what is happening and calling on for every individual to, to take action. Mm -hmm. 
So, so far since uh, 2019 especially, um, also thanks to the media reports and the leaked the documents, since the World Weather Congress UK office was established, I mean, we have achieved quite a lot from, you know, people hardly known about who are Uyghurs. Now I can say majority people understand what is happening. Mm. Also in the UK Parliament, I am sure no MPs can say that I didn't know this issue. Yes. Also, we campaigned for genocide amendment to the trade bills. Mm. Um, although we didn't win, but <laughs> through this campaign, we managed to gain huge support from the MPs and also managed to get the boycott the Olympic diplomatic boycott, so no officials were sent to the Olympic openings. Yes. But compared to what is happening to my people, the achievements so far still very, very small, but we, we're working very, very hard. Mm. The issue itself is, is extremely difficult. We are against one of the most powerful government in the world. Yes. What's well, really really amazing work and I'm sure it requires you to work round the clock but as you said you are making an impact and it's it's really really inspiring. I wonder just about yeah the role of music in your activism you mentioned it a little bit but maybe you could just expand about yeah the place of of music in your activism and also what you consider the role of music to be in terms of reaching new people allowing people to understand more about people's culture and people's heritage. Art, music, poetry always plays extremely important role in, you know, preserving the identity of people and also touching the heart of millions and billions. I was born in this uh, very, very lucky to be born in a family of musicians. And music always played a very important part in my life. From, uh, you know, surviving cancer and many uh, up and downs uh, from personal level. Music, songs, poetry is a healer. For me, it's a place where I can escape, heal myself to make sure that I am energized, I am inspired, so I can continue my work. Because uh, the work that I am doing, uh, day in, day out, talking about genocide, listening to terrible stories and horrific uh, things, and I myself lost contact from my family for the last five and a half years. Mm. And it, it is not easy to keep mentally healthy. Mm. I can see a lot of uh, my fellow Uyghurs suffering from depression, anxiety. Mm. For me to be able to remain healthy, still can laugh and still sing, still can dance, still can do my work, it's the music. I cannot imagine my life without singing, mm. without my musicians. And uh, the performance itself, um, compared to, for example, we organize like protests and other activities, 
uh, when we have uh, concerts, we have far more uh, uh, people turn up at the concert compared to the protests, for example. And through music in a very soft, gentle and uh, a beautiful way that we tell the story of the sufferings of, of my people. Mm. So a lot of my songs, you know, I, I always translate at least one verse of the songs. So the song itself, the lyrics itself can tell the story. It's a joyful, passionate, inspiring and uh, beautiful way of telling the story of my people and make sure that the Uyghur culture, the musical tradition, the way of life and our identity, our language, our poetry stay alive and thrive even if we now facing genocide in our own country as an artist in exile, as a campaigner and a human rights activist who's leading this huge campaign. And uh, I feel so blessed, always feel so blessed that God gave me this talent and uh, music is a rescue for me. And I will do whatever I can to preserve my, my culture. We'd like to thank Rahima for sharing her story, her work, and her music with us for this episode. If you'd like to learn more about what she does and listen to her music, please find links in the description. If you are enjoying the Art Persist podcast, please consider following us, rating us, and sharing the podcast online. Only with your help can these important stories be heard. Coming up next week, we chat to a Myanmar couple who share their experience of the 2021 coup and their subsequent escape from the country. Thank you for listening and see you next week.